please join me in this prayer of illumination? If you feel comfortable, say it out loud together with me. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> is there anyone here who likes a good princess love story? Anyone? Yeah. <laughs> a few. <laughs> Anyone grow up just loving the story of Cinderella? Yeah, a few. Anyone really intrigued by the stories of Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle, these present-day princesses? Some of you are having blank stares. Who are Kate and Meghan? Who are these people? If you don't know, it's okay. You just haven't gotten caught up in the pop celebrity news. They're just modern-day princesses in the British royal family. So there's no denying that in today's world, there's a major fascination with princess love stories. We have a little girl. We are already seeing it in all the books. We love these stories of these ordinary young women being wooed by a charming prince and then falling in love and living the rest of their days happily ever after in a royal palace. If you're a person who loves a good princess love story, today our story from the book of Esther is not that. <laughs> you didn't see that coming, did you? It is not that at all. It, there's a, I have to name this because in 2006 a movie came out called One Night with the King, did anyone see it? Has anyone heard of it? Oh, Bob has seen it. So this, this movie came out that, that kind of gave this depiction that a lot of people sometimes have of the book of Esther, that it's this um, epic tale of romance between a king and Esther, which is not actually the biblical story at all. So if you've seen that movie, you might have to bracket the memories, Bob. There is another version, though, that's more accurate. That's the VeggieTales version. Has anyone seen that one? A few have. Okay, well, I endorse the VeggieTales version of Esther. It's actually quite accurate to the portrayal of the, the plot and the characters, so um, I can endorse that for your, for your viewing. So the story of Esther, it's not a princess romance tale. I'm sorry to tell you. But for those of you who are suckers for love stories, I can tell you that this is an epic love story. It is an epic love story that carries far more meaning, far more hope, far more importance to our lives than a romance between a king and a princess. For Esther is a story that reveals God's love. God's unstoppable love for his people. It is a story that reveals a God who cannot and will not let evil and injustice prevail. It is a story of a God who works on behalf of his beloved in powerful and mysterious ways 
to provide and care for them. So if you're a sucker for love stories, this is the best one possible. It's the grand story of God's epic, unstoppable love for his creation. So today, before we read today's specific text from Esther chapter 4, I need to catch you up on Esther's story. Because the book of Esther, it's really intended to be read all at once. It's one cohesive story, just like you would sit down to watch an entire movie and not, not just watch like 10-minute chunks spread over you know, uh, weeks and weeks. It's meant to be read at one time. So I encourage you, perhaps this week, to sit down and just read it at once. I did it a couple times this week. It only takes about 20 minutes. It's really not that hard to do. So just sit down and read it. It's a really intriguing story. But I know perhaps many of you haven't done that yet, so I'm going to catch us up this morning. It's a really good story. So the story of Esther, it begins somewhere in the 400s B.C., This is 400, 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. During this time, there's one main empire that's ruling the known world. It's called the Persian Empire. Here's a map to show you how large the Persian Empire was. They ruled all the way from northern Africa all the way over to modern-day India. If you remember the last couple of weeks, the Babylonian Empire had come into power, conquered a whole bunch of lands. Well, the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians, and then they conquered more lands, so that's how they get this massive empire. So it's really, really big empire, 127 provinces in all, Esther tells us. That means that the leader of the Persian Empire, the king... He has a lot of power. I mean, like, a lot of power. And this king of the Persian Empire, he's the first character we meet in the story of Esther. He's a really prominent character, so we need to get to know him. His name is King Ahasuerus. He's also sometimes called Xerxes in Greek, if you've heard that name. So what we learn from the book of Esther about King Ahasuerus, that's kind of a mouthful, right? King Ahasuerus is that while he's in all this power and ruler as king, he's not, might we say, the sharpest tool in the shed. So King Ahasuerus, when you read about him, he's, he's very easily swayed. He can't really make his own decisions. He's really unpredictable. He doesn't display much wisdom at all. Some six or seven years ago when I was in seminary, I took a whole class on this little book of Esther. And there's one word that I heard most used by Old Testament scholars to describe King Ahasuerus. And it was the word buffoon. Yeah, I know, not very flattering, huh? Right. So that's the guy who's in charge of, like, most of the known world of the day. He's kind of this comical figure, even though he's in this position of high leadership. And what else we learn from King Ahasuerus from the very outset of Esther is that he has three main interests we learn about in chapter 1. Wealth, women, and his ego. So Ahasuerus, he goes to extreme measures to secure all these things for himself. At the very beginning, he throws this huge party for all the leaders of the Persian Empire. It's a party that lasts six months. Get that. 
a six-month party. How would you like to be invited to that? And verse 4 says he does this in order to display the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty. So basically for six months, this guy is trying to brag with all of his gold and decadent palace and silver and to show people how great he is. But then on the last night of this extravaganza, the six-month party, the king has one more thing that he decides to show off, and that is the beauty of the queen. She hasn't been in the picture yet, but six months in, he decides, I want to show people how beautiful my queen is. Because remember, Ahasuerus is also really obsessed with women, particularly the beauty of women, and he has a pretty good trophy queen, he thinks, So he commands her to come and be paraded around in front of all of these men, who by this point are probably a little bit drunk. We know at least the king was. Verse 10 says that he was merry with wine. And so he wants her to come and just be paraded around in front of hundreds and hundreds of men. How do you think Queen Vashti felt about that? Well, she has a good head on her shoulders, and she says, no, I don't really like that idea. She's, for one, she's busy. She's hosting her own banquet for the women in the palace, which is no small venture, so she's kind of busy. And second, she has some dignity. She doesn't really like this idea of being gawked at and paraded around. So she says, thanks, but no thanks. And you can imagine the king doesn't really like this. It's quite a knock to his ego, so he does what uh, King Ahasuerus would do. He kicks Vashti out of the palace. Gone. Just like that, because she said no. So, she's kicked out of the palace to who knows where, her fate to be who knows what, and that's just the end of chapter one. I told you it's an exciting story. You really should read it for yourself. It's really exciting. Okay, so now here's the king, King Ahasuerus, this king of all this empire, but he has no queen, and in that day, kings are supposed to have queens, so he's in this problem, I need a queen. So he goes in search, trying to find the most beautiful young woman to replace Vashti. But this search by Ahasuerus, it's not like The Bachelor. Anyone seen that show? I've watched it just a couple times, but I've seen enough commercials to get the gist of it. So it's not this fun dating game where you can go home with prizes and get all this pop celebrity stuff. It's it's not a fun dating game, this finding a queen. Chapter 2 tells us that the king has all the beautiful young virgins gathered to the harem in Susa. Friends, this is not a dating game. This is ancient human trafficking. The king forces hundreds, probably thousands and thousands of young women to be forced from their families, forced from their homes, never to return again. These young women will be forever forced to live in the king's harem as concubines, as the king's slaves who have to do whatever the king tells them. Let me repeat, this is not a princess romance story. This part of the story is a tale of horrendous evil and injustice. It is a tale that we are all too familiar with, the tale of unchecked power wreaking havoc on the vulnerable. 
One of these vulnerable young women is Esther. She's our second main character in the story. So now we need to move on to, to Esther. What we learn about our second main character is that she is a girl on the very bottom of the social ladder in the Persian Empire. She's about as vulnerable as you could get in those days. She's an orphan. She's being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. She is a woman, obviously, living in a day when women had very few rights. And, this is significant, Esther is a Jew. In that day, Jews were a very small minority group in the Persian Empire. They were a minority group which was often discriminated against, including by the king's right-hand man named Haman. He's going to come in later, so remember this. Haman doesn't like the Jewish people. So here's Esther, a very vulnerable woman in her society. She's taken against her will, away from her family, and she's put into the king's palace for the rest of her life. After about a year, something incredible happens. Esther is crowned queen. After one night that she's forced to spend with the king, it's the first time the king's met her, and he decides, I like her, and gives her the royal crown, and she becomes queen. Remember, he's kind of unpredictable. You don't know what he's going to do, and bam, he just decides she's the winner, and she becomes queen. So Esther is suddenly queen. Well, there you go. So it's likely, remember, though, that Esther does not really want this position. Remember, she's still essentially a slave to the king, this king who has thousands of other concubines, a king who deposed his last queen just like that, so who knows what he's going to do to her. He's a king who's unpredictable and unwise, which makes him quite a dangerous person to be living with. And yet here is Esther, a girl made queen, placed in this high position of influence in the most powerful empire of the world. And though she doesn't likely want to be there, we see the hand of God at work. We see God working behind the scenes amidst all the evil and injustice in order to bring about God's good purposes. We see Romans 8, 28 in action. God working together all things for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. In Esther's life, we start to see a glimpse of hope. A glimpse of God's strong and steadfast love for his people that will not give up on them, that will pursue them, that will save them. That's where we pick up today in the story of Esther, chapter 4. But before we read, there's one more really important detail you need to know. So do you remember that guy I mentioned named Haman? He's the second second guy in charge of the whole empire, and he has a grudge against the Jewish people, against God's people. And when Mordecai, Esther's cousin, refuses to bow to Haman, Haman gets his ego offended, and so what he decides to do is have all of the Jewish people killed, like all of them, because this one guy didn't bow down. 
So Haman convinces King Ahasuerus to issue a genocide of all the Jewish people. All it takes to convince the king is a little bit of money and an appeal to his ego, and bingo, the king signs off on genocide. So the king, he signs off on this killing spree of all the Jews, and yet he doesn't even know that his own queen is a Jew. The plot thickens. I told you it's a good story. You're going to want to read it. So that's where we pick up today in chapter 4. Mordecai, Esther's cousin who's raised her like a father, has just learned of this order to kill all the Jews in Persia. So hear now the word of the Lord from Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone, may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. 
After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. If I perish, I perish. These are Esther's last words to Mordecai before she takes this risky venture. You see, Esther very well could have tried to save her own skin. She's in a position of great power and privilege now that she's in the palace. She could have used all that power and privilege to just hide her identity as a Jew, to hide behind the protection of her royal position while ignoring the plight of those with less privilege around her. But she refuses to do that. Instead, strengthened by her faith in God, she puts her life at risk. Using the position of power that God had given her, in order to do God's will, in order to fight for life. So spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you how this ends, because you need to know how it ends, because it gets better. So Esther, after her fast, she is strengthened in her faith, and she musters the courage to go and risk her life, to go to the king unsummoned, even though the law is that she's supposed to be killed if she does that. So she goes to the king unsummoned, and in his providence, God provides for Esther again. For some weird reason, the king decides to have mercy on her and allows her to live and even allows her to make a request. So eventually, Esther does. She makes this request, and her request is simple, that the king stop this genocide of the Jewish people. And again, by a number of providential events, the king finally agrees to do so. Not only that, but Haman, the man who had evilly requested this genocide, he is ordered to be killed instead. Afterward, Haman's position of right-hand man to the king, it is given instead to Mordecai, the Jew, Esther's cousin. Can you talk about a reversal of fortunes? Now, I hope you read those last chapters because they're a lot more exciting than I just described. And all over the place, in all of the details, small and big, you see God's hand of protection and provision at work, paving a way for the salvation of his people. Except when you read the book of Esther this week, there's going to be something interesting that you might note. Here's the interesting thing. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. That's right, read all ten chapters. You will never once hear God's name mentioned. There are no direct words spoken by God, at least that we know of. No actions attributed directly to God. At the outset, God appears eerily absent. In the midst of this horrible evil and injustice that's going on, 
God appears completely hidden. That's how it appears on the surface. But if you look deeper, if you have eyes of faith to see it, you can see that God is at work all over the place. You see God working in hidden and mysterious ways through big and small details alike in order to bring about his good purposes. This is true both in the book of Esther and in our world today. The question is, do you have eyes to see it? This is the question that Jesus himself asked often, which we would be wise to continue asking every day to ourselves. Do you have the eyes of faith to see God at work all around you? Even amidst all the evil and and injustice and suffering of the world, in our thoughts and in our own actions and in the news feeds and in the world around us, even amidst all of that, can you see God at work? Can you see God every day caring for and providing for his beloved creation? Can you see God at work in the details, working together things for good for those who love God? Even when God's name is not directly mentioned, even when you don't have some incredible burning bush experience like Moses or hear the audible booming voice of God to you, can you still in the quiet see and hear God working out his redemptive purposes. Do you have the eyes of faith to see it? When the days of Esther, we can imagine that for all the Jews living under the reign of King Ahasuerus, there were many times where they were tempted to think that God has just left us. God is silent. God is nowhere to be found. God has given up on us. For this vulnerable, powerless minority group, there was nothing that they could do in their ability to stop this evil ordered against them. They were powerless. It had appeared that evil was going to win. And yet, and yet we see that God was at work, even when he seemed hidden even when he seemed silent. God was at work in a mysterious way to combat the evil that was plotted against his people. God was at work raising up the most unlikely candidate ever to save his people. This young, poor, orphaned, ostracized girl, she is the one whom God raises up to do his marvelous work. It is through this young girl, Esther, that God works out his plan of redemption to reverse the evil tidings, to save his people, and to bring justice to the land. The book of Esther is a truly beautiful story. And yet hidden within it is a foreshadowing of the most beautiful story ever told. It is a foreshadowing of the one who is to come. 
The one whom God will raise up to save his people once and for all. The one who will bring about the ultimate reversal of evil tidings for all times and in all places. Folks, Esther foreshadows Jesus. Like Esther, Jesus, too, is born into the world among the most vulnerable in his society. Jesus, too, comes as a poor child. Jesus, too, lives as a persecuted minority, daily threatened by the malicious rule of an unjust political leader over him. Like Esther, Jesus, too, lived in a day when God's people wondered if the evil of the world could ever be stopped, when they felt powerless. But through Jesus... This very unlikely candidate, born in a manger. God works in powerful and mysterious ways to stop the seemingly unstoppable. Through Jesus, this very God made flesh, the greatest reversal of all is accomplished. Jesus, like Esther, willingly uses all of his power and privilege not to save and protect himself, but instead to save his people. Jesus risks, ultimately lays down his life for the life of his beloved. It's the greatest love story ever told. And in this ultimate act of self-sacrificial love, God accomplishes the greatest reversal of all history. The cross, which was evilly intended for the death of Jesus, becomes the very instrument through which Jesus destroys death itself and evil itself forever. It is the greatest reversal of all times. It is the greatest love story of all times. And through the cross, the hidden, mysterious workings of God are made clear. It is made clear that God has never and will never give up on his creation. It is made clear that evil and suffering, though they still linger here for a time, one day they will be no more. It is made clear that Jesus is the true king and that his word is true, that one day he will come again to reign in full and all the seemingly unstoppable forces of evil in our world, corruption, abuse, disease, wars, even death itself, one day they will be stopped forever by Jesus. And even now, If you have the eyes of faith to see it, Jesus reigns. If you have the eyes of faith to see it, you will see Jesus at work all around you in hidden and mysterious ways, bringing about his redemptive purposes. If you have eyes to see it, Even when God's name isn't explicitly mentioned, even when you don't have some supernatural burning bush experience, if you have the eyes and ears of faith to perceive it, you will know that God is at work powerfully among us. So this Advent season, this season of expectant waiting, 
I encourage all of us. Let us keep our eyes open. Let us ask Jesus to give us fresh eyes of faith, to see God at work all around us, to see the hidden and mysterious ways that he is doing wonderful work to bring about his redemptive purposes. And if we so dare, I hope that we ask God to have a heart of faith that we would be willing, like Esther, to be used by God for his redemptive purposes. Because who knows, as Mordecai told her, perhaps God has placed you right where you are right now for just such a time as this. Let us pray. Lord of all creation, we thank you for your providence for the ways that you protect and provide for your children, even in hidden and mysterious ways. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ, for this great reversal achieved on the cross, the victory of God over evil. So Lord, may your Holy Spirit empower us to be witnesses of your self-giving, steadfast love in all that we do and all that we say. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.